Ski, Shoot, Repeat, a biathlon podcast, hosted by Lizzie Boyle. Episode 28. We could be heroes. Daniel was in his teens when his family moved to California. It wasn't easy for him to settle. He was bullied by the kids in the local school. His fortunes changed after he met an elderly man who helped him find physical and mental strength through martial arts. Despite the best efforts of others to injure him or to cheat during fights, Daniel stayed true to his course and won his tournament. If that sounds like a familiar story, well, it should. It's the plot of The Karate Kid. Change the names and the sport, and you'll find that it's also the plot of Rocky and its sequels, and the plot of Cool Runnings and Eddie the Eagle. Change the setting, and you'll find it in most high school musical-type films too. It's no coincidence that we tell the same stories over and over again. And it's no coincidence that when we find those stories woven through the sports we love, in the real world, not in the context of a movie, that we are drawn to those stories. This episode... I'm going to take you on the hero's journey. We'll explore the structure of so many heroic adventures and stories, see who some of the heroes and heroines were from the Biathlon World Championships in Nova Miesto, and have a moment to celebrate some heroes who maybe don't follow the pattern, but still do amazing things. In his book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, writer Joseph Campbell described the hero's journey as follows. A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man. In simpler language, in a story with a hero's journey, we see a hero going on an adventure, learning a lesson or two, winning a victory with that newfound knowledge, and returning home transformed. There are three essential stages. The departure, where the hero leaves the familiar world behind. The initiation, where the hero learns to navigate in an unfamiliar world. And the return, the hero returns to the familiar world. Let's have a look at those in more detail. In the departure stage, the hero is living in the so-called ordinary world when he receives a call to adventure. Usually the hero is unsure of following this call, this is known as the refusal of the call, but is then helped by a mentor figure, Mr Miyagi, who gives him counsel and convinces him to follow that call. In the initiation section, the hero enters this special world where he must begin facing a series of tasks until he reaches the climax of the story, which is the main obstacle or enemy. Here the hero has to put into practice all the things that he's learned on his journey to overcome the obstacle. Joseph Campbell talks about the hero attaining some kind of prize for his troubles. This could be a physical token, perhaps a medal, or it could be increased wisdom or knowledge about himself or others. And finally, the return. Feeling like he is ready to go back to his world, the hero must now leave. Once back in the ordinary world, he goes through a personal sort of metamorphosis, realising how his adventure has changed him as a person. 
The hero's journey seems to underpin so many of the stories that we bring from classical mythology, where it was often literally a journey which the hero was taking, whether Odysseus heading off to sea or Orpheus going into the underworld. We also see the hero's journey in our modern equivalents. Frodo Baggins, Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter all follow the same structure. Sometimes the journeys are less obvious. They're interior journeys rather than physical travels. And sometimes the journeys are less dramatic. Leopold Bloom walking around Dublin in James Joyce's Ulysses, for example. Feminist thinkers have critiqued the masculine vibe of the hero's journey. It's based on traditional stories of male heroes by male writers and is built on historic structures of the roles of men and women, expectations, starting points, and what's even possible for people. The men go off on heroic quests, the women stay at home. In many cases, the women are the object of the journey itself, the princesses to be rescued from the towers, or the wives to be collected back from hell. Maureen Murdoch and Victoria Lynn Smith are among those who have written about the heroine's journey, reflecting that this is often a deeper and more introspective journey into a woman's place in a masculine world. In the heroine's journey, there is often an adoption of masculine values, seen as aggression, competitiveness, and physical strength, which leads to a dissociation of the woman from herself, a descent of some kind, and a regathering and rebuilding towards a reconciliation with the self. I'm talking about the hero's journey and the heroine's journey because they came to mind last week whilst I was watching the World Championships, thinking about who we root for in sports and why. In some cases, we root for the athlete with the most skill, or the least, the great champion or the underdog. In some cases, we follow allegiances set down by others, the national team, or the football team your family's always supported. But the stories that resonate with us, the people we collectively root for, perhaps they are the ones with this heroic element, this sense that the journey has not been easy, that there's been early growth, a series of challenges or setbacks, and a recovery or rebuild which has made the athlete who they are today. Now you know that this is leading to discussion of our world championships, and I'm not saying that all of the world champions have the best stories, or that there aren't heroes' journeys among the people who finished in midfield. It's just that the light shines brightest on the faces on the podium. And there are some races who seem to have universal support, so it's worth asking the question, why? In no particular order, then, some of our heroes and heroines. Lisa Vitozzi is probably the ultimate example of our heroine's journey. Lisa had built her career as the second best female biathlete in Italy. Dorothea Vera was the champion, the fast skier with the faster shooting and the impenetrable mask of perfect makeup and a stoic expression. Doro never looked like she was suffering. Lisa was always going to be number two, until she got a bit faster and started to win things. And then the setback. Her shooting deserted her. More specifically, her prone shooting. In the 2021 season, her prone shooting dropped to an average of 61%. She was missing two out of every five targets. In some races, she would miss four or even five prone targets. Her standing shooting was still great, 87%, and it was almost as if she was more relaxed knowing she was out of the race by that point, and she could find her way into the top 20 in a lot of races despite her challenges. She's talked publicly about her experiences. There's a fantastic video on Biathlon World or YouTube where she explains it in her own words. By 2022-23, her prone shooting was up to 88%. It wasn't perfect, and there were a couple of nightmare races, but she was coming back 
much to the joy of everyone in the fan community who wanted to see her succeed. This season, she's been shooting 94% prone, 92% standing, and she has turned her weakness into her superpower. She's only been outside the top 10 twice this year, and at the World Championships, she was her own nation on the medal table, winning the individual and collecting silver in the pursuit, the mass start, and the single mixed relay alongside Tomasa Giacomel. In a 20-shot race, she's very hard to beat, but it's perhaps that single mixed relay that stands out. That's a race that's all about short bursts of speed and shooting. It's a series of sprint intervals, and not where you'd expect an endurance specialist like Lisa to do well. And yet, there she was, only needing one spare round, helming Italy back up to silver after a disastrous early shoot for Giacomel. Other races won more medals, but few won bigger cheers than Lisa Vitozzi in Nova Miesta. On the men's side, our heroes were many and varied, but perhaps the biggest cheers went to Stirla Holm Ligrid, and perhaps in a race where we wouldn't have expected it. In a world where there is Johannes Tingis Bo, there is always someone who's going to come second. Stirla has made an art of it, finishing second more than a dozen times in the last year and a half. Last season, he was accurate, and he was fast, and yet he still couldn't find a way past you-know-who. This year, he hasn't had the greatest form. His ski speed is a little slower, only a little, but his prone shooting has dipped from 98% to 87%. I'm going to say those numbers again. Last season, he shot 98% in the prone. That is insane. This season, it's 87%, which is still ridiculous. Now, normally you'd expect Liger to thrive in the longer format races, where taking 20 shots plays to his advantage. But it was the sprint where he managed to slay the demons, shooting 10 out of 10, burning all of his physical and mental energy to force himself across the line three and a half seconds ahead of Johannes Tingis Bow. His celebration when he realised what he was done was visceral and raw. It was animal. It was great. Two more heroines to talk about now. This is a slightly weird one because these are women whose trials and tribulations have been something about something that happens every day, something that seems mundane. They are women who have become mothers. Justine Brezabouchet took last season off to have a baby and came back with some insane ski speed and a look of steel in her eyes. Her shooting has been wild on occasion, but when she can tame it, she's almost unbeatable. We saw her speed in the sprint where she finished just five seconds behind Julia Simon, despite missing a shot, and we know that Julia is not slow. In the pursuit, Justine picked up a bronze, despite four misses. So it came down to the mass start and the head-to-head -head racing that we've seen so often, Justine versus Julia. And it was Justine who held it together, shot 20 out of 20, and was able to celebrate her final lap and take gold. The other new mother who gets a mention is Baiba Bendika from Latvia. She's not the biggest star on tour, but she is popular, well-liked, in part because she's so engaging on social media. She gave birth in October last year, returned to racing soon after with some good speed, and Nova Miesto gave us 9 out of 10 in the sprint in a fantastic fifth place. She was the best of the rest of the world behind an unstoppable French team that day. I mentioned Julia Simon, and it's weird to only be talking about her this late in my recap. She was insanely good in the first week, taking gold in the sprint in the pursuit and bronze in the individual. That bronze was perhaps as meaningful as the goals. It equaled her best ever performance in an individual race and shows how much she's still developing as a biathlete. 
She seems to run on energy and adrenaline, and an individual race is often more about the calmness of Elisa Vitozzi than the channeled aggression of a racer like Julia. She picked up another gold in the relay, and then a fourth in the mass start. So is she one of our heroines? Perhaps with Julia it's too early to say. She's developed in her career, building year on year to take world titles last year and this year. She's worked hard at it, honing her craft, improving the things that needed to improve, and learning to control her mindset. And perhaps she is still in the midst of her difficult period of life and obstacles. She's racing this season under the cloud of allegations about misuse of somebody else's credit card. We don't know how all that will get resolved. It feels like it's been put to one side until the season is over. But perhaps we're still in the unfolding of Julia's story. This model of heroism that I've been talking about is one which lives through literature, theatre and film. It's an archetypal story that we see over and over again. It ties in closely with the concept of the American dream, that you have to struggle to achieve, but that anyone can win if they just try hard enough. American culture is so dominant that the narrative of the hero and of that dream permeates the whole world now, sometimes in ways that aren't helpful. The sense that an individual has to fight in order to triumph downplays the importance of the collective or the group. And it downplays people whose struggles may seem lesser or minor. It suggests that an achievement isn't as important if you didn't have to really fight for it. Or that it's not as important if the fight wasn't made visible. I read an article just this morning about proposals to change the long jump in athletics. The detail doesn't matter, but the suggestion was that this is now an era in which sports stars are expected to also be big personalities, with narratives like I've described above. We need heroes and villains, underdog stories, narratives that will sustain a whole series on Netflix or Amazon. We are building layers and layers of stories upon people who are simply trying to be the best they can at the thing they do. Imagine if, in your work, you had to talk to camera every day, to justify your choices, to go back over each conversation and each moment to figure out what it all meant, and to document it all with photos or videos showing it you at your best all of the time. Maybe you live like that. But maybe there's something to be said for living more quietly, doing the things that you do, and just floating to the surface from time to time. If you want to buy an athlete who perhaps embodies this, maybe it's someone like Yakov Fack. In his late 30s now, and still shooting 91% prone and 86% standing. In a 20-shot race, he's usually going to be there or thereabouts. He picked up a ninth in the individual and a sixth in the mass start in Novomiesto. I'd like to imagine he's a big star in Slovenia, but then Slovenia has so many sporting stars, and he's perhaps not even the most famous Slovenian biathlete right now. But it's the influence of people like Fak, showing up, being consistent, being the guy when there's not really a team around you, and helping to be at the heart of a programme. Maybe we need some of these quieter heroes too. Before I leave the World Championships, just a few performances that I want to mention because they were personal favourites. Campbell Wright, now skiing for the USA, but is always described by both his American and New Zealand roots. He came 11th in the sprint with a 10 out of 10 shoot and 12th in the pursuit. And he helped to bring the US into the top echelons in the relays too. It was phenomenal. His is a real story of emergence from great performances in the youth competitions and translating that into success at world level. Remember, he's still only 21. So technically, he's 10 years away from his biathlon best. What about Thomas McKiska? Now this is not a biathlete you will have heard me mention before. 
He's from Czechia and he tends to land in the 20s or 30s in terms of positioning. He's young and has a lot of promise, but is still developing. This World Championships was a real moment when he stepped up. I've talked before about how home crowds often have a negative effect on performance in biathlon. That's quite well documented. The crowds in Czechia are so passionate that it can be really tough. Mikiska was the guy who stood up and said, put me in the spotlight. From a start number of 47 in the individual, and that start number tells you a lot. He hit his first 19 targets, just snatched at the last one, then buried himself on the tracks to come home 10th. It was astonishing, exciting, galvanizing, and he seemed to love every single moment of the reception he got. His race followed a 12th place in the women's individual for Jessica Gislova, who has become a really consistent performer at this level, largely based on excellent shooting. Tuli Tomingas of Estonia was also fantastic, and she did have some misfortune along the way. She again has built a good season out of strong shooting, and has been regularly in the top 15 or so. She stepped up in Novo Miesto, taking 10th in the pursuit. She would have finished even higher in the individual, but for an error in the range where she stood on her ski poles. This wouldn't seem to make a big difference, but is a breach of the rules as it might make you more stable on your feet, so she was disqualified. Her response? Contribute to an astonishing fourth place for Estonia in the women's relay, and then shoot 19 out of 20 to take eighth place in the mass start. Regular listeners know that I love a small nation performing well, and I think Estonia might have won my heart this time, with great results also for Regina Ermitz and Christo Sima. And I can't finish without mentioning Jeanne Richard of France. She was the most junior of the French women, in a team with Julia, Justine, Lou, who won multiple medals, and Sophie, who picked up a relay gold and two-fourths, there's often not much room for another one. The French women took places one to four in the sprint, which meant that Jeanne's 15th place might have been overlooked. But it was the behind-the-scenes stuff which was amazing. She was so joyful and supportive of her teammates, always there with hugs and enthusiasm. And it felt like she was just enjoying every moment of the experience of a World Championships. Jeanne Richard may not have been the most important racer on the tracks, but I'll remember her from this Championships for sure. After a week off, the Biathlon Circus has travelled to Oslo, and the fantastic Holmenkollen complex. If you've never seen it, it's worth watching some of the TV coverage. Everything centres around the ski jumping hills, with the cross-country tracks snaking around. It's also incredibly accessible by train from central Oslo. The schedule for this week. On Thursday, the 29th of February, at 1.15, we have the women's individual. Friday, the 1st of March, also at 1.15 UK time, we have the men's individual. Saturday the 2nd of March at 12.20 UK time, we have the women's mass start, followed same day as Saturday at 2.20 by the men's mass start. And then on Sunday the 3rd of March, we have a double header of relays, the single mixed relay at 11.45 and the mixed relay at 1.45. It's a nice bit of scheduling and it's unusual to have the relays as the big event on a Sunday. I'd expect great crowds throughout and a very international crowd. Oslo's an easy journey for a lot of people, and proximity to the city centre makes it an easy location to reach, as I mentioned. So who to look out for? Well, the first thing to say is that there is often fatigue, both physical and emotional, following a World Championships. That can make this weekend quite hard to predict. Who will still be on a high? 
Who will be trying to salvage something from a disappointing championships? Who will have any energy left? And who's still competing for Crystal Globes in the season-long World Cup competitions? The individual races will feature those who are consistent shots and have endurance. Lisa Vitozzi is, as we know, superb at this. She won the gold in Nova Mesto. Julia Simon is more likely to thrive in the head-to-head of the mass start. Lou Jean Monod has shown that she's great on the range. Perhaps the post-World Championship vibe will actually favour someone like the German women, Preuss, Voigt, Hetichwaltz, all of whom shot consistently well and will be feeling confident after their Nova Miesto performances. On the men's side, Vettel Christensen has something to prove. His World Championship started really well with a couple of medals, but he struggled in the second week and will want to bounce back. He will have also had a chance to regroup with family after the loss of his grandfather, and that may add as extra motivation. Expect Johannes Tingisbo to want to demonstrate his superiority in front of a home crowd, particularly in the mass start. And after their great performances in Novomesto, let's hope for some more top 10 placings for Estonia and Finland. One last thing. We can see the hero's journey everywhere, but as I've tried to suggest, it's not the only story, and it's not always the greatest story. It doesn't work that well if you want to write a sequel, for example. Oh no, the hero had to go back out into the world and face more obstacles in order to come home transformed again. It loses a bit of its magic, doesn't it? The hero's journey also doesn't really work so well when you have sustained success. The story is a bit flat if the hero gets so powerful that they just win all the time. See Martin Foucault and Oleina Bjorndalen. Perhaps recognise that Johannes Stingisbo has been much more interesting since he started to lose a few races. Joseph Campbell wrote The Hero with a Thousand Faces in 1949. A lot of his thinking was popularised in the 1990s, particularly as a kind of magic bullet for writing Hollywood screenplays. But times change. Journeys of rugged individualism were all the rage in early 20th century America, but become less powerful when you look at the structural issues that different groups face. Yes, you can be a successful athlete or musician or whatever, but the obstacles you'll be facing look different if you're a woman or a person of colour or if you have a disability. And it's often in the power of groups that change comes. Many of the strongest of civil rights stories have been about collective movements of protest rather than necessarily one individual dictating all. Stories centering on women are often more about the collective because they're often more about the domestic sphere. There's still an assumption that somebody is changing the diapers somewhere. And stories from elsewhere in the world are based on different mythic, social and political conditions, so the American homogenised version may simply just not fit. So let's end with a celebration of some unsung heroes from Novo Miesto. The two mascots, Novo and Miesto, who were at every medal ceremony having the best time. The stadium announcers and DJs, who created such a great atmosphere for the crowd to enjoy. The stewards, parking attendants and bus drivers who brought the crowds in safely each day. The guys cooking barbecue and pouring beer throughout the day. There's some great footage of TV expert Mickey Rush eating some incredible looking food. The medics and healthcare professionals on hand every day, just in case. The people in the timing booth checking data, feeding it out to us biathlon junkies so we can assess and analyse mid-race. There are so many more. Watching some of the Junior World Championships this weekend from Ottopar in Estonia, you could see that the sport is held together by love and joy as much as by sponsorship and committees. A huge thank you to everyone involved in a great event from Novo Mesto. Next stop, Oslo.
Thank you for listening. You can find a transcript of this episode, along with links to background information and sources, at skishootrepeat.podbean.com. Please do follow us on uh, social media at Ski Shoot Repeat. And do get in touch to tell me what's right and what's wrong. I've said before that this podcast is built more on love than on knowledge, so I do expect to get fact-checked. Let me know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes. I'll be back next week to review the racing in um, Oslo and look forward to the transatlantic adventure to follow as the Biathlon World Cup heads to North America. Thank you for listening to Ski Shoot Repeat. I've been Lizzie Boyle.